everybody, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by my rad co-host, Amy Hollenkamp. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and today we are talking about stress as it relates to IBS, SIBO, and gut health, more broadly speaking. Now, Amy, I don't know if you would agree with this. Actually, I think I know if you would agree with this, but I'm going to say that anyway. Have you had cases uh, in your clinical practice of of clients or patients who seem to have a root cause of SIBO that is stress, where like nothing else really seems to be really relevant in the history, like no food poisoning, no PPI use, none of the other typical culprits. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, stress affects the gut in so many different ways, negatively, pretty much all negatively. Um, And it's something that tends to go under the radar because everyone's stressed in some capacity and we sort of reward stress in our society, unfortunately. So a lot of times people aren't looking at that avenue. It seems so obvious sometimes too, where like people are like, oh yeah, I am like for sure stressed, but they're not connecting the dots of it being a big driver of their SIBO or their IBS. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think there's pushback from what I've seen with clients and just kind of interacting with people in the SIBO IBS space of when they go to their doc, if the doc even mentions stress, there's sort of a pushback of, because it tends to be more of in a dismissive way of like, exactly. oh, it's it's just like you're stressed. You're just stressed. Get over it. Yeah, exactly. So there is this underlying current of almost resistant to it being stress too, like wanting something bigger and like, which managing stress is a huge animal to wrestle. It is. That's the hard work. Exactly. It's, it's hard work. And I think there's some resistance to that too, of like, oh, you might need to like restructure some things around and put a lot of time and focus on this. And I think we are all programmed to not put time and energy into stress management. It's almost seen as weakness in some way in our society, which is totally off base. It's not accurate. You have to be well rested and your system has to not be in chronic, a chronic stress response to function optimally. So it's a, I think of it as the, you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. Like that's how I kind of imagine it personally. Yeah. 100%. And like, I also think there can be good stressors too. Like you have a baby or you start a new job and there's just stress that comes from naturally from that. It doesn't have to be bad stress either. It's not like um, it has to be like a breakup or like trauma. It can be like subtle things that you wouldn't think could be really impactful, but they all add up. And so, yeah, I definitely see stress as being a big factor for a lot of the clients that I work with. Yeah. And I would agree. I think I've had those cases. Well, a couple fold. I've had cases um, or patients with SIBO and gastroparesis and IBS and like everything in between. And they come to me and we go through their their health history with a fine tooth comb and nothing is adding up. Like they don't have any of the other root cause triggers that I would normally fish for. But their condition was predated by some pretty awful stress. Like one lady comes to mind, her husband lost his job. 
they were under a great deal of stress as a family for about, I think, a year. And that happened. And like right around that same time, she started getting bloated and like IBS and bowel movements changed and the gastroparesis was diagnosed. And it just all kind of snowballed away from her. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And that was a topic I wanted to get into is that in the conventional medical community, for better or worse, they approach stress from a very dismissive place of like, ah, you're just a stress case, whatever. Like, get over it. Just, you know, don't be stressed. And A, it's never that simple. But B, like, it's not like you can just consciously choose to not be stressed. If you've ever talked to any human being in their life, like, that's not how it happens. Um, same thing with anxiety. You can't just tell somebody with anxiety, don't be anxious. Yeah, or like, like that's chill out. Not that's work. not going to, yeah, it's yeah. going to probably uh, cause the opposite effect. Yeah, yeah, because they're going to feel not heard. And like they've been dismissed. And I still remember too, I had this this patient with migraines. She was primarily seeing me for migraines. And she had, you know, some gut stuff too, but we were going through her very complicated health history and we were going through, you know, what all led her to the path to come to me. And I brought up stress pretty gently. Like I try to approach it from a non-assholey standpoint, honestly. And she, it was very surprising and scary for me because she lashed out at me big time and got she started like cry yelling at me you know like she's crying and screaming at me and like talking really fast and getting really like sympathetic and really like riled up and telling me that of course she's not a she's not a lunatic she would never give herself migraines intentionally and she doesn't want the attention and she doesn't want this and this and of course she's not and I was like whoa and I just had to kind of sit back and absorb it because, like, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. But I was like, the whole time I was like, this poor human being is, A, if I thought she was stressed before, now I know you're really stressed and you're really teetering on the edge of that sympathetic dominance issue. Like, if any little thing, like, tipped you over that edge, A, that proves my hypothesis. But B, just like, my gosh, like you've been through some trauma and this is not reflective of like your opinion of me or me necessarily. It's just, you've been through a lot of bullshit to get to this point. And she had had migraines for years and years and years and years and she couldn't live her life. And she's tried all the drugs and it's just like, you poor, you poor soul, like you've gone through so much. So I really tried to not take it personally, but it was very startling and kind of honestly scary, especially as a people pleaser person where like, I hate anybody being angry at me or frustrated with me. I was like, oh, yeah, I wasn't yeah. trying to be a jerk, I swear. Yeah, no, I, I think you're you're 100% right. Like a lot of times if I'm analyzing a case and there's like a few that come to mind where it's like, oh, like, yeah, it could be like something over here. It could be something over here. And then like, we're kind of like piecing it together and they're like, they sort of say it as an afterthought, like, oh yeah, like there was like a huge period of stress right here. And so like, usually it's not like what they're zeroing in on most of the no. time. It's it's mm -hmm. like an afterthought. So it, it usually probably takes a practitioner like us who's really keen and looking closely at those comments of like, okay, wait, can you like explain what was going on? Yeah. It'll be like, oh, my, my dad died or like, you know, yeah. I've had a huge move and like I basically uprooted my family or 
you know, started a new job that was really stressful, mixed with other stressors. So yeah. it, it is wild um, that there's a lot of blind spots. And I think there's a, there's a ton of reasons for that. I think there's, we're very resistant to do stress management. That's at least what I've seen from mm-hmm. working with people. And I think even to myself, I can find that there's some periods of time where I'm way more resistant to stress management. And usually that's when I'm stressed. So like, yeah. uh, it's such a, a hard area to tackle because there's a lot of blocks that come into play yeah. there. And I think just culturally, there's a lot of blocks. I think for women, it's harder. I We've kind of brushed on this in the past too. I, I find that for women they don't know how to work it into their day if they're trying to do everything for everyone. Um, And I think men in the other direction, like sometimes bury it deeper and like, don't really acknowledge that they're stressed. Like I think women are a little bit better about knowing that they're stressed. Um, Men, I feel like not quite as much from what I've seen. I don't know if that's something that you've seen. Totally. And I would argue that that's part of why married men live longer than single men. Have you read this statistic? Like, pardon me. Um, You know, it's what, it's like five years difference between married men and single men. Oh my gosh. And I swear, I think it's two reasons. I think that A, well, no, I think it's one main reason because their spouse, oftentimes women are going to be the person who's like, you need to go to the doctor. You haven't been to the whatever doctor in a long time. Here, take your vitamin. Here, eat a vegetable. Like my dad straight up would survive on nothing but pizza, cheese doodles, and 7-Up if it was up to him. (laughs) But because my mom and I and my husband are around, like he occasionally eats broccoli or Brussels sprouts or something. But like, that's not his choosing. So I think that women tend to get our men to do the healthier things. And also um, maybe it's like, women are a little bit more in tune with stress and anxiety and stuff. And I think that sometimes it's the women in their lives who are like, okay, Roy, enough's enough. You need to go to, you know, a psychologist or a therapist. Like we need to go to couples therapy because I can't handle you and your stuff anymore. And um, yeah, so I have observed that also um, about men. Although women, I've, I've seen numerous times with myself and with other women that we can be blissfully unaware of how stressed we are. And I think it's a protective mechanism because it's like all your body knows is that you need to survive and you need to keep going and keep going and keep going. And if you stop for long enough to observe your stress, there's like this risk that your body's just going to say, whoo, and not, not keep pushing through. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like a survival mode. You're in survival mode, just trying to get through the day and get everything done. And if you acknowledge that you're stressed, that could make you more stressed. So it's a tricky paradigm to get out of Mm -hmm. if you're in that space. And that's something I see all the time too. So yeah. And I would say, I think a lot of stress, at least as I observe it in the modern world, a lot of stress is due to feeling like we don't have time because we have to work, you know, we have to work and have our family life and maybe have a social life and maybe do something for our health. And it's like, and we have to cook and we have to clean and we have to do whatever. And it's like, you know, I I know I, that's my biggest hurdle 
is the reason why I'm not as diligent about exercise or meditation or doing the things that actually would benefit my stress level and my health is because I convinced myself that I don't have the time. And it's really tough because it's like, how do you tell a person who self self-assesses that they don't have the time, how do you tell them, well, but maybe you could make a little bit of time and just like meet me part way. It, it, it could be really tricky. Um, right. And, and I think like usually, and I'm sure you do too, gauge where the person's at. Like yeah. if someone's stressed to the max, I don't know if it's optimal to try to incorporate like a large volume of stress management at one time it's like how do you take baby steps towards the right direction um and one other thing and we'll kind of dive into this too with stress there's so much interaction between like the brain gut access the hormone like there's so much yes. internal stress that's happening with gut issues anyway mm-hmm. um it, and i think that's something i see too where some of the people i'm working with will tell me you know what i'm not really stressed at all like i don't think i need stress management and i'm sure there's some stressors that they're just unaware of but like even mm-hmm. the fact that you have like a chronic issue internally that's stressing your body out yeah there's like physical stress that's happening um and i think the physical stress is a really key thing to clue in on because like that encompasses like movement sunlight uh circadian Mm -hmm. rhythm sleep it's not just about like meditation and like what we typically think of as stress management to bubble baths yeah exactly to keep the systems uh aligned it has to do a lot with a lot of different things um and i think usually if you can do small tweaks in a lot of different areas you're gonna get a bigger effect than like just focusing on doing bubble baths um or like doing 30 minutes of meditation like you could do the same allotment of time Mm -hmm. kind of spaced out in different areas and you could have a bigger effect yeah yeah and i think also like um just kind of evaluating your individual stressors too. Like I've definitely had scenarios and sometimes even in my personal life where I'm like, all right, does it make more sense to spend money on a gym membership or a meditation app or a meditation doodad? Or does it make more sense? Like if your main stressor is poor communication with your spouse, maybe you're better off spending a couple hundred bucks on some counseling sessions and that would net you a better result instead of buying the bath bombs and I don't know, and like going to the spa or, you know, the cliches. Like maybe you could send, spend that amount of money on something that's unique to your stress. So sometimes that is lost in the conversation too. Like you could do the generic stress reduction stuff, which is great, but also like identify your biggest sources of stress and then try to tackle those to the best of your ability. Right, like what's the cost benefit ratio to your stress management approaches? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a really interesting point. And to kind of jump off from there, I know working with clients, sometimes there's like almost too much focus on like 
nailing every piece of the stress management that they don't have like any fun or pleasure like i almost think that that's like a big take piece it too of far it. Yeah. yeah a big piece of it too like i can they're like you know they might be meditating 15 to 30 minutes a day they're sleeping they're like checking every box but then like they st i'm talking to them and they still seem stressed and like I, you know then i might ask them like how or do you hang out with your friends often like are you engaging in um, activities and hobbies that you like um, is there anything that you want to do more of that you aren't doing now currently yeah. I, I think those are all key questions too of like maybe it's just a lack of doing things that you enjoy um, yeah. and that's not to say that you have to go and like do something really intense that's like dive into some whole new thing it's more like how can you get find pleasure on a weekly basis yeah. with things fun that you and enjoy. human connection yeah for sure and actually that's a really funny point and i had never thought of it this way but i'm going to totally rat out my best friend right now so when you were talking about this it made me think of so mamie is the raddest human being ever hi mamie uh, so mamie and i went to an ifm conference a few years ago we've rendezvoused in san diego we shared an Airbnb. It was so fun, mostly because of her, less because of the IFM. And when we met up, I remember one of the things that she would do is she would wake up early in the morning before me and she would meditate like a weirdo in the closet of the Airbnb. Oh. <laughs> Wait, why did it have to be the closet? I don't know. She wanted privacy. She's also yeah. very tidy, so I get like she fits. But yeah, she would literally like wake up, go lock herself in the closet for like an hour, I think, and meditate first thing in the morning, which is great. I would keep sleeping. And then uh, in the evening, at some point, she would like lock herself in the closet and meditate for like another hour in the evening. And in retrospect, freaking baby, you should have just hung out with your BFF for that extra hour and foregone the extra hour of meditation, you weirdo. Because here, like we we barely get to see each other because she lives on the 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 other coast. I was going to say the wrong coast because I tease her. But she lives in San Francisco. I live in North Carolina. We never get to see each other. It would have been possibly more therapeutic to just lay on the bed and like shoot the shit and yeah. just chat and like connect with your best friend again for the five days we were at the conference. But it is kind of funny because it's like that same allotment of time might have actually been more effectively used just goofing off and shooting the breeze and like not doing something that typically we would think of as a stress reduction thing. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm thinking of one client in particular who um, it, he's like the head of a, of a health and wellness company. Like, so very like very into health and wellness. Um, we were having a conversation and he was basically saying, you know, like meditation seems to stress me out. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And we're kind of like talking it through. He's like, I've been doing it every day. Like, but he's like, it just feels like a chore. Like, and I, so we're exploring like, okay, like what, what else are you like seeking that you're not getting now? And we kind of boil it down to like, he is like big on adventure and with mm. covid stuff like he hasn't been able to like do as much travel with his friends and so then we're kind of like okay we're we're on to something here like how can we work this in in a in a way that's like comfortable yeah. for you and safe to do considering the current time so we're like oh he loves to like go off-roading on his bike but just like hasn't been doing it as much so then we can start to kind of wean into what you're saying 
a very specific approach that'll work for the individual. Meditation isn't going to work for everybody. Yeah. Um, and stress management's a very individual thing, and it yeah. sometimes takes a level of experimentation and really understanding how and why you're stressed to figure out what's going to work for you. Yep. Yeah, and it makes me think, too, I had a patient... Um, we did our most recent appointment probably two weeks ago. And it was really interesting. We ended up talking predominantly about the stress response of the gut brain axis and how that relates to his symptoms. And uh, he's an attorney. And he was basically he was like, describing his work. He's like, you know, I own a business, I'm always behind, I've always got like 8000 projects, and I've got to do like, you know, the free, you know, like the little freebie calls to talk to prospective clients. And I've got, I'm always behind on some big project. And like, I just hired somebody to take some tasks off my plate, like an assistant, but I have to train them. And then that's stressful. And we ended up talking quite a lot about his business and his business model and his work life. And it was funny, because I almost felt like a little bit of a business coach in a way, because we were talking about like, oh, here's, here's where you could put like a filter in place and make a little bit less work for you. Or here's that way you could pre-qualify somebody before working with you. Or, you know, here's, here are things that you could do to like manage your clients a little bit better. And I was joking with him because after like 45 minutes or an hour of talking about this, I just kind of kicked back. I was like, this is the most holistic appointment ever because we haven't talked about your gut at all. We're talking about the real issue, which is your poor body is so like tense and stressed all yeah. day. And then for him, all of his symptoms kick in as soon as he lays down to relax or go to bed at night. And I was like, it's probably your poor body that's like hanging on by a thread all yeah. day and has like this tension. And then you lay down and your body is like, oh, <laughs> and yeah. you just you like collapse and you fall apart. And there you get this manifestation of symptoms. But um, it ended up, I, I thought it was a very productive conversation, and I think he did as well, uh, where it's like, you know, I could tell you to take a probiotic, or I could tell you to eat fermented food, or whatever it might be, but I think the big, big, biggie driving your gut symptoms is your stress and your work life, and just, you know, putting some things in place and trying to work toward it. Like, I've got 8,000 sticky notes on a board right here next to me. Like, I'm not perfect, but... Yeah, uh, my work definitely causes me stress, but it's like keep chipping away at it because, uh, like I told you, as an unbiased third party, like this is this is what's going on with your gut, and you could do, you know, I had him start doing like a marshmallow cold infusion, and that really helped his symptoms and his reflux. So he's like, you know, keep doing the marshmallow, but also work on the actual root causes because if you just keep pushing through with your lawyerly business the way it is, I think your gut's going to be pretty PO'd indefinitely. Yeah, no. And I, I think it can be very easy to like in the functional space that we sort of operate in to get caught up in like the, the supplements or the labs or those sorts of things. But sometimes it's like the most practical thing that like, isn't really on the radar, like of the health world. Most of the time, sometimes those are the things that help the most, which is, always surprising sometimes. Um, uh, Interesting, uh, one of my favorite like functional integrative medicine stories that it's actually in Chris Kresser's book. Um, Mm -hmm. 
in I think it's in his book or maybe it was in his podcast, but I'll never forget it because it was like during my health journey and it mm. like was a light bulb moment for me. But he was saying, and this was like five or six years ago. So when like, I feel like when a lot of the restrictive diets started to get more intense. Yeah. Um, but he was working with like a younger guy, maybe 20 years old, 25, like somewhere in there. And this kid kept getting worse and worse and they kept like kind of like manipulating the diet, but it wasn't working. And so one day the kid came in for an appointment and Chris was like, you know, what do you like, what do you want? Like, is there something that like you feel like's off? And the kid was like, I just want to have like pizza and beer with my friends. Like, that's all I want to do. And Chris Kresser's like, well, maybe we should just like, do that like maybe once a week like you can have that yeah. like as something you do and Chris either wrote in his book or on a podcast again I'm not sure said that like literally the kid got better because he needed connection like yeah. even if he was kind of eating beer and pizza um which certainly is not necessarily not healthy. optimal right. for the gut but the benefit of the connection was greater than the con of eating outside yeah. the realm of the diet and for that particular case, he needed connection in a huge way. And he wasn't able to do that when he was on the restrictive diet. Yeah. So it's just like a really, and I think the diets in general cause more stress into an already stressed out system. But I always like that story because it definitely emphasizes that like, you do need to be aware of like what your body's telling you and, and some of these things that we cut out to pursue health you do need to be healthy it's weird it's like a weird um i don't there's know a it's a weird spot. dilemma yeah there's a sweet spot where it's like you you want to obviously not eat like bear claws and pizza for 100 yeah. percent of your diet but also like it orthorexia right it's that like yeah. unhealthy obsession with healthy eating and I think that the same thing could be said of just like health promoting things. So the people yeah. who are overly stressed with, you know, I have to exercise X amount every day for, you know, my health and I have to do X amount of meditation a day and I have to take X amount of supplementation a day and I have to, you know, do whatever. And it's like, okay, but like having all of that on your plate can actually be intrinsically stressful at times. So just like give yourself a, a week off where like you stay in your pajamas for the week or yeah, and like you don't meditate or work out ever. Like, for sure. Like, um, but yeah, I think that you can go too far. It's the too much of a good thing. You can have that with health promoting things like nutrition and other health promoting things where like the... And you can think of it as like crowding out. It's similar to dysbiosis where like you want to have enough good things in your life that you crowd out the opportunity for anything bad to come into your life yeah. in a weird way. But also if you fill up your life with, and again, I'll pick on Mamie in this case, like with that trip, if she filled up her days and her moments with the two hours of meditation every day, it did take away from the opportunity to just hang out with me. And let's face it, I'm pretty cool. So who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah. But like, you know, it's, it's, every moment you have a choice to do something and sometimes the things that we think are health promoting might actually not be as much as we would think like maybe just being a bum and watching netflix with your friends and eating a slice of pizza is actually gonna net you more positive benefit 
Right. And um, I think something to clue on what you're saying about like the net benefit, the way I sort of view it, and I talk about this with my clients, like the reason you do these things, like health promoting things is so that you can live your life the way you want to live your life. Like yeah. you, sh- you have passions, you have goals, like you have things you want to do. If the health promoting stuff is preventing you from being able to be productive and the things that you want to, you want to do and the passions that you enjoy or the people that you enjoy, like that's not good. So um, it's almost like swapping one out for the other. Exactly. It's such a, in fu- the, the sweet spot idea is such a good way to think about it. You just want to be cautious about um, where you're drawing that line. And I think just asking yourself too, are these things serving me? Am I being productive? Am I, am I accomplishing some of the goals that I'm laying out for myself and mm-hmm. still doing the passions that I enjoy? Um, Cause I, I do see a lot of times like so much of the health promoting stuff doesn't allow for productivity outside of the health space. Like there's so much focus Mm. on the health, the health activities and um, strategies that you don't live your life at all. And so again, it is that fine line approach, that sweet spot approach that I think is really key. Um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I think, you know, be a healthy person, but don't cut your nose off to spite your face. Yeah. It's almost another way to think of it. Like, Mm -hmm. and it makes me think again, I'll pick on some colleagues. I went to an environmental medicine conference and it was so fun. And it was out of town. Like I, you know, did an Airbnb with a friend. And I remember there was a group of a handful of individuals. And this is like, this is the type of conference where we're talking all day, every day about, glyphosate and phthalates and BPA and like all of the chemical scary shit out there. So every year when I go, it does add this layer of like paranoia. I'm like, Oh God, I have to worry about that now. Um, But then I remember like when I hang out with the group of like naturopaths who are super into environmental medicine and like the toxins and the detoxing and stuff, they're kind of impossible to hang out with sometimes because so many of them will only go to like two restaurants ever because the restaurant has to be 100% dedicated organic, 100% farm to table. They ask like the wait staff, does anybody, does anything here get sprayed with Roundup? Like, and it's kind of, it's like, yeah. it's great to try to avoid that chemical shit as much as you can. However, if you are to a point where there's only like one restaurant in your town that you'll dine at, if it's something like that, but like you do have some potential control over, like maybe, maybe live La Vida Loca and eat at like the gluten-free restaurant that's not 100% organic. Yeah. You know, like that would be wild for some of these folks. Yeah. Um, Living life on the edge. Yeah. And I know like some people, you know, do exist that get noticeable symptoms immediately from glyphosate, for example. So they have to be more cautious. And like, obviously, if you are a celiac like me, or if you're gluten sensitive, you can't just like go and eat at like Domino's or Olive Garden. Like, there, sure. is, there is that like, keep it reasonable. But also, again, I'm telling you these, these, this particular group of like nutritionists and naturopaths, 
they're just impossible to socialize with because they refuse to go anywhere other than like one or two restaurants in the greater Phoenix metro area, which is, by the way, a very large city. Yeah. If you have two restaurants in the greater area of Phoenix that you're willing to go to, you'd be doomed if you moved to a place like Chapel Hill because it's a small town. Um, Yeah. I'm thinking of Cincinnati, Ohio, which I don't know. It's like a decent sized city where I'm at and... I'm trying to think of like a 100% organic besides like maybe something that's like a smoothie. Like we have a couple smoothie like juiceries that are more 100% organic. Um, But yeah, it's super challenging. And like for me, because I get so much benefit out of connection and I think it sounds like you do too. Like if I get invited to a restaurant with by a friend that, you know, isn't 100% organic, like, I can do my best and find things that I know I can tolerate pretty well yeah. on the on the menu and like be just fine and the benefit outweighs the con of like okay yeah, yeah there might be pesticides on the foods and um that yeah. sort of thing but I'm okay with that yeah and similar like I'm really grateful to live in this day and age because I can't imagine being a celiac 20 years ago or 30 years ago or more for example so like there are definitely you know I think practically every restaurant I can find something that I could eat. Well, maybe not every restaurant, but um, many restaurants I can be at least, you know, even if it's like I get a salad and a plain steak, like I could, I could do something typically if I have my say in it, I'm going to pick one of my favorite restaurants that I know is really caters to gluten-free stuff. But yeah, if I get, if I get invited to something, um, I'm going to try to go and I might call the restaurant ahead of time and ask about their options and do my homework. But I'm generally going to try to go when I can. Um, but I think back, like my first celiac friend, I remember in undergrad in 2004, one of my best friends was celiac. And I don't know how the girl survived because she was running marathons. She was a rower on my rowing team. And literally the only thing I ever remember the girl really eating was artichokes and cucumbers. And I'm sure there was other stuff too, but like there was no gluten-free pasta. There was no gluten-free bread. There was no nothing. And it was just like, I remember her eating those two items. And I don't know how she survived as long as she did eating that way. Just- yeah, I, I that blows my mind too. I had like um, a friend similarly who I ran cross country with growing up and in high school who would eat like coleslaw in a little bag in Diet Coke. Like, that's all she would eat. And I'm like, you were literally running, like, she would run before school and after school for for cross-country practice. And I'm just, like, thinking back, like, we knew something was off. Like, we'd kind of, um, you know, give her grief for how many diet, like, how much Diet Coke she drank. Like, be like, oh, Kelly, she's got, like, two huge Diet Cokes from McDonald's. You know, like, on our way home, we, we'd stop places. And, like, it blew my mind how much Diet Coke she drank. But looking back, I, it, it is crazy. Like, I don't know how how some of these really intense athletes are, are getting by with, like, artichokes no. and cucumbers. Yeah. Sounds like the worst combination. Yeah, from my uh, from my standpoint, it was a lot. So I'm yeah. definitely grateful that I have more options now than yeah did back then. Um, and thankfully, you know, she's doing better now, and she lives in a place. <laughs> Buffalo, New York, has never been like a cornucopia of healthy eateries. Yeah, um, they're you know they're big on chicken wings and pizza, <laughs> and those are like the staples. So yeah, she didn't have a lot of options back in the day. Um, 
that you know, she moved to Oregon, and that opened up some possibilities for her. And now, with gluten free being so much more popular and common, now I think she's doing okay with that. But yeah, at the time, I remember she sus- sustained herself on like a very minimal amount of items. Oh um, no, poor Jill. I know. Oh, Jill. She, well, for the record, is the friend who told me, and I quote, it's a natural kind of dirty and convinced me to drink the creek water. <laughs> for those of you who have not listened to episode one yet, I encourage you to go listen to that story. Oh my gosh. Well, the, Jill. Creek, the creek water, like, might was that what we think might have spurred the the celiac in you? Or like, I, I, maybe I she really wanted wonder, a friend. Yes. Maybe she wanted a, a celiac right? friend or something. <gasps> that jerk. Yeah, she was definitely a celiac before the parasites. Maybe she was trying to treat her own celiac disease, right? Because, like, there are some cases of, like, autoimmunity and inflammatory conditions being treated with, like, you know, porcine hookworms or something. Like, maybe she she was trying to treat. She was going to take her her chances with... She was sick of the the artichokes and the cucumbers. She was going to take her chances with the creek water. She was going to take me down with her. Yeah. She didn't care who she brought down. No, no, we were just thirsty and we were done. Oh, no. <laughs> um, well, I think, too, like, what we probably want to touch on is just, like, the physiology of the stress response. Yeah. And and what that looks like. I know one of the interesting things that I'll always point out to the clients that I work with, um, there was a smaller study. I wish there was more just because I think it's fascinating that that links IBS with low vagal tone and that hmm. makes a lot of sense yeah. from our standpoint. Um, but oftentimes if your vagus nerve is not optimal, you're going to have a really hard time getting out of getting out of a fight or flight state. You're going to be sort of slated to be in that more yeah. sympathetic dominant state. And so a lot of times too, if you are someone that is like anxious and stressed out, um, you could have this low vagal tone issue that's really preventing you from going into a a rest and digest state, which is going to be optimal for digestion, motility, and pretty much everything digestively. Um, so I think that that's something really important to, to recognize. And I know that you talk about this too, but even just the, the, which I've heard from my clients, it's like, I feel stuck in fight or flight. Yeah. I, I've definitely heard that a lot. I'm sure you've heard it. And I almost think like there's a lot of physiological effects that make it harder to get out of fight or flight when you have some of these like nervous system uh, issues that are slating you more towards a, a fight or flight yeah. state. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to pull something up too. I wonder if I could screen share uh, for a moment. Mm-hmm. I think I will be able to. I would add to that too, that yeah, I think that the the tone, like sympathetic versus parasympathetic uh, tone is important. And you can think of it too, like if you're if your rest and digest side of your nervous system, if your vagus nerve is not working appropriately, or if you haven't used it in 20 years because you've been a damn stress case. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have been chronically stressed for a lot of years, it's you can't go and exercise that muscle, so to speak, right away. Like you can't go from never going to the gym to doing 100 push-ups overnight. You're going to fry your nerve. Right. So instead, it does, sometimes it needs to be gradual where like you start with baby steps 
and then more baby steps and you build on it because nerves have a tone to them and they have a health and a plasticity. And if you try to get that nervous pathway to do too much all at once, it's going to be like shell-shocked. So I think this is where like gradual baby steps in the right direction is important. And just knowing that Rome wasn't built in a day and you're not going to get there like immediately uh, is important. And yeah, and like if you perceive that you're stuck in that fight or flight mode, then just taking it down a couple of pegs gradually can be really, really beneficial. Um, And that is something that I find really fascinating. And this is something that I'm researching a lot these days is that coincidentally, like in the integrated medicine space, we tend to talk about like the sympathetic parasympathetic thing as like one entity and then like adrenal fatigue or the stress response and the HPA axis is kind of this other entity. But now in my opinion, we're talking about basically the same thing and there's just multiple threads to the web. So even something like, you know, stress chemistry, and this is what I'll share my screen with you for just a quick moment for, I don't want to bore the audio only people, but basically what you're looking at is there's this graph that I like to show patients where, you know, it is, it's a pyramid shape and cholesterol is way up at the tip, tip top. And then you, your body takes cholesterol and it turns it into all of the sex hormones. So progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, all of those are made out of cholesterol. Or you have an alternative pathway. If you do, if you go to the left in this image instead of the right, you can turn that cholesterol, that precursor, into cortisol and cortisone. And I've seen this numerous times where like people's stress response is getting away from them. And, you know, their estrogen is all wacky. And also, you know, their cholesterol is really high a lot of the time Uh, or bottomed out completely. And they have like no cholesterol in their their blood sample. And I think it's that the body is trying to shuttle precursors towards the stress chemistry because it's just like you need that that chemistry to keep you going. You need that cortisol to like keep you alive and keep you trudging through life. And it can throw off everything else. It can throw off your hormones because now you're sucking up the precursors and you're turning them into stress chemistry instead of testosterone and estrogen and progesterone. And it can mess with your cholesterol synthesis in the liver because I think your liver just starts saying, oh my God, like we need more of this stuff. We'd better make more cholesterol. Yeah. And it can throw off so much of your physiology. It, the moment you start messing with hormones, everything kind of goes out the window because hormones interact with literally every cell of your entire body. Um, And the same thing goes for the gut because you need to absorb nutrients and yada, yada. But like, that's just one example of like the chronic stress response of the fight or flight. And it can really just put this cascade into play where it kind of snowballs away from you. And ultimately the best thing you could do is to work on mitigating that stress chemistry and that stress response and help your body handle that more efficiently. Um, yeah everything else though yeah and I like what you were saying too and I believe the same exact thing that like I don't there's so much interplay between the nervous system and hormones and so I kind of view it as a stress response like Mm -hmm. like fight or flight tends to be like connected to the nervous system but there's so many like again as I sort of view it as a stress response because it's more than just the nervous system being activated in one way it's like this cascade of hormonal effects that happens after it Mm -hmm. um 
And I think that like, it's interesting what you mentioned about the cholesterol stuff too. Cause I almost think like cortisol is such a master hormone uh-huh. where again, if your body's feels like it needs more cortisol and it's like going down a different pathway and pumping that out then cortisol is going to interact with a lot of other hormones. And one hormone it interacts yes. with a lot is thyroid hormone. Uh-huh. Um, again, if, if cortisol is being chronically activated and that system is being activated, a lot of times thyroid hormones get suppressed and they also pull cholesterol out of the blood into cells. Uh-huh. So I think that that's a connection to if the stress response is like out of control, thyroid hormones are usually trying to like slow down m- metabolic function a lot of times. Uh-huh. Um, preserve fuel or things like that. And there can be a big thyroid effect um, when cortisol gets out of whack. And so I I definitely see that with cholesterol too, um, a connection between lower thyroid hormones, like active hormones, not like the messenger TSH, but like free T3 um, and higher cholesterol as well. Yeah. And I think like, you know, going to the the cortisol piece of the conversation, the so-called stress hormone, but acknowledging it has a lot of other roles in the body. For sure. There is, you know, hormones interact with every cell of the body. And therefore, again, like all hats are off when you start talking about a, a hormone like cortisol. Um, but one of the things is that cortisol and corticotropin releasing hormone, the the thing that kind of pre predates or precedes cortisol release those two hormones will directly cause leaky gut and they will directly upregulate and degranulate mast cells in the intestines, which are a type of immune cell in the intestines that tend to be either more numerous or more active in people with irritable bowel syndrome. And it can lead to a lot of the, the symptoms and the pathology that we see with irritable bowel syndrome. So again, it's like if you're chronically in that fight or flight, yes, your vagus nerve is going to be toast and therefore your motility is going to be toast and you're not going to make stomach acid and like your digestive juices are all going to suck. But also you're going to be giving yourself leaky gut and you're going to be giving yourself some pretty ticked off and degranulated mast cells. And then that can perpetuate things like visceral hypersensitivity and irritable bowel syndrome more broadly. And it'll, it'll keep you stuck in a freaking rut if you don't address it. And you're going to keep learning the same lessons until you you take note and you respond to them. I think that's something I'm learning in my adulthood too, is like, if something, you know, your body sends you a minor annoying signal, and then a moderate annoying signal, and then a big annoying signal, and then it's just going to start doing weird shit and just whacking away and stuff. And it's like, yeah, you know, it keeps escalating the response until you pay attention and you do something. Yeah, And it's your body kind of saying like, you knucklehead, pay attention to me. Come on. I'm stressed. Cut it out. But again, it's it's the American way. And it's the way of the modern world is just like, take all your stress, ball it up into a little ball and shove it down and never open it back up ever. And it's hurting a lot of people. Um yeah, no, I think that like, I, I sort of view, like from an evolutionary standpoint, stress as being like, if you are stressed and your body thinks that you're chronically being attacked by a bear, it's, it has no use for digestion. So yeah. it, it's going to shut that system down um, in a lot of different ways. And 
you're just going to have major problems. And like what you're saying, it's going to keep you stuck. And I also like that you were saying like, it's going to constantly send you signals until you pay attention. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. we often don't pay attention to the earlier signals until it becomes a major issue. I'm not immune to that. I don't know about you, but like, exactly. I've had that in my personal life too. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it, unfortunately, it often gets to like a point where it's way more life disrupting than it might have been at the initial stage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to me, like simply put, stress is just going to totally halt digestion in so many different ways leave you more susceptible for permeability also mm-hmm. even just like virulence of some pathogens increase mm-hmm. when you have more stress which is basically saying that like yeah. pathogens can become more disease more promoting yeah. yeah so i mean a lot of times people you know have things like these pathogens on stool tests that we see and it's like if you're stressed out, like it's going to be really hard to get rid of pathogens as well, um, which I don't know is a huge problem. And it's interesting if you think about it, because remember, like back in the day, we used to think that oh, reflux is caused by stress, yeah. like stress and acidic foods. And now it turns out, well, acidic foods almost always are high histamine foods. A and B, like the stress, maybe it's playing a direct role. But maybe it's also playing an indirect role and it's making H. pylori more virulent in the stomach. Yeah. Or candida more virulent in the stomach or whatever it might be. And now you're, you know, you're off to the races and you've got this like sucky reflux problem. And the doctors tell you, hey, you're just stressed. But it's connecting those dots and realizing, no, this really is relevant for me. Now what do I do about it? Yeah, I mean, it's taking down your your immune defenses. Like if your gut's permeable and it's leaky and your immune system is shot because of stress and and the stress that's going on in the gut and the inflammation that's going on in the gut, it would make sense that there'd be a higher like virulence of these pathogens. Yeah. And again, it's, it's just so crucial to like find ways to to work on some of the stress management stuff so that you can mm-hmm. can overcome some of the gut stuff. And I mean, like we were talking about before, it's just, there's a lot of missed opportunities from what I've seen to, to hone in on this. And it's, I think a lot of times, cause there's so much focus on the diet piece or, which also adds stress to the equation. Yeah. Um, there's so much focus on a lot of these strategies that don't affect stress in any way, maybe add add to stress. Like if you're just managing tons of supplements and tons of dietary restrictions, mm-hmm. that's just going to add more stress to the to the mix. Um, and so it's it's just such a challenge, I think, because in this even in the functional space, I feel like there's not as much focus on the stress management piece as no. I would like. Again, kind of how how clients will bring it up to me as an afterthought. I feel like same thing goes for practitioners. Like mm-hmm. they might mention it like, oh, like you should be doing something. But like then it's just kind of a casual comment. It's not like yeah. really honing in on strategies for that particular person and making it a, a bigger pillar of, of the strategies that you're utilizing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen that too. 
I have, and I've fallen susceptible to that a little bit in my clinical practice, but I'm much better about it now. Yeah. Um, I think there's a few reasons. Like, I can speak for the functional medicine slash integrative naturopathic profession, um, not necessarily conventional medicine. I think that they just are like, all of them are burned out and overworked and underpaid and just yeah. like, they just hate their life. Um, but um, with the integrative space, you would think like most of these people like myself are business owners and we kind of, we structure our day in a way that we see fit and, you know, we charge higher rates and we don't bill insurance. So there's a lot of things that you would think like, oh, that person like can be more open-minded and think outside the box and do things in a particular way. But I've noticed, I think that stress is overlooked or downplayed in the functional space, A, because we get a lot of shiny thing syndrome where we go to conferences and we go to seminars and very frequently seminars are sponsored by or put on by a supplement company. Or if it's a big conference, they will have booths with vendors from companies that sell supplements or lab testing. And on the breaks, you are encouraged to go mingle and talk to the people at the booths. And it, it like it's okay because them doing booths, that's subsidizing the fee that I'm paying for attending the conference. So like it's a win-win. But also I think I always go into those situations with like a little dose of skepticism. Because yeah. I know that every single one of those people at those booths want to sell me shit. And they want me to open up an account and put big, big orders in for all of their fancy schmancy supplements and pills. And that's their goal. And I have to be the one to like make that decision if I want to do that or if I think it's going to be helpful for my patients. But all of those people at the booths are salespeople. Yeah. So I think that a lot of practitioners are maybe not as aware of that or they're not as like skeptical of that. And so they go to a conference and then they learn about a new supplement and they're like, gosh, golly gee, I'm going to get all my patients on that supplement. Or it's just really emphasized in protocols and in group forums, like on professional forums. It's always like, give me your best SIBO protocol. And then people yeah. are just rounding off supplements. So I think A is that the, the profession does tend to be very, very supplement heavy. Um, and B, I think, and I get this a little bit. I don't know if this is like me having a weird complex, but I feel like I need to live up to the doctor title to some extent. And it almost feels like if I'm going to get kickback, like that patient who lashed out at me, if I'm going to get grief for doing like more of the life coachy stuff, um, you know, they, I, there's an element of me that's like, oh, but what if people are like frustrated and they think, gosh, if I wanted life coaching, I would have paid a lower fee and I would have gotten a life coach instead of right. going to see you and like, you need to doctorify me and talk about test results and magic pills. And I wonder if my colleagues feel somewhat similarly in that regard. Like they think they need to do just the doctory stuff and leave like the health coaching to the health coaches. But you can't separate the two because it's people's lives that are making their bodies freak out. And you can't just like give people a magic essential oil for vagus nerve tone and think that that's going to cover up the fact that they are miserable in their marriage or they get zero sleep per night, or they hate their job, or they have a long commute, or like they never see their friends, or, you know, pick pick your poison. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see the what you were describing, because I think that it's so basic, like stress management seems so basic. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times, it sounds like 
working with my clients, it's like everyone's having so much trouble implementing it. So there almost is a skill around like, how do you coach? Like what's the coaching mechanism of, of figuring out what works and what doesn't. Um, But, but I get what you're saying. It's like, you want to make sure that uh, they're getting out what they're, what is expected, you know? So I, I 100% can see that. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I don't know if I'm the only one who feels that way, but I've definitely had those moments where yeah, I'm just, I'm conscious of that. And I feel like I need to bust out all the bells and whistles and fancy yeah. stuff, but um, yeah. that's not often what gets people better. I've spent a lot of money on, on a very expensive inventory of supplements and magic pills. And sometimes they are magical and oftentimes they're not. And you've just got to balance like a little bit of supplementation a bit of diet work and some of the lifestyle stuff. And like, it, it's tough. It's way easier to take a pill. I think that's the other thing is the issue of compliance. I think yeah, that for sure, you know, from a, sure. my profession, I think it's like, well, I could recommend X, Y, and Z, but are they going to be compliant with it and follow through with it? Or I can recommend that they take, you know, X herbal magic elixir, and then they'll feel like I'm doing something for them. And I'm not giving them like a chore to do. Um, so I think that's a piece of it too, is just like gauging people's willingness to do stuff. Right. No, I, I think that makes total sense. Um, from like, um, do you typically use any like adaptogens that you like? Oh, so I know you're much. the, you're the herb, Love. you're the herb lady. Yeah. And that, I pretty much keep this bad boy on my desk at all times. Oh, it's nice. like a giant of adaptogens because even I need to refer to it sometimes. Yeah, totes my goats. My, one of my experiences that really made me open up my eyes, and I'll kind of paint this picture for you, is that I, for a while, I was in this phase of my clinical career where I was like, eh, I'm not going to worry about the adrenal so much because I, you know, there there's compelling data and there was a meta-analysis a couple years back, I think it was like 2016, that point blank said adrenal fatigue is not a thing. Like adrenal fatigues, it does not exist. The glands don't fatigue, that's not a real thing. And we know that some degree of HPA axis dysfunction is a thing. Yeah. But like the idea that the glands shrivel up and it goes through like stage yeah. one, stage two, stage whatever, like right. that, that is not super well uh, established in actual literature. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. So I kind of followed that. And I thought, A, when I was really stressed and really fatigued, my adrenals looked perfect on paper. Yeah. And that frustrated the heck out of me. And I thought, well, yeah, like if I don't have adrenal fatigue, who does? I'm not going to do this kind of test. And B, you know, reading things like that meta-analysis made me really question like, ah, just it's like hippy-dippy bullshit. I'm not going to do it. But what I've realized now, like I said earlier, is that the gut-brain axis and the so-called adrenal piece of the picture that we usually talk about are one and the same thing. Yeah. They're just all melded together in a mishmash. And what I've found is that most of the herbs that we think of for the adrenals, so, you know, the adaptogens and the nervines, things like ashwagandha and passion flower, like they probably work less on the adrenal glands themselves, but they work on the nervous system and that fight or flight response and that sympathetic parasympathetic balance and that that unconscious part of your nervous system that you don't have conscious control over, it's modulating and balancing that. So I use a lot of nervine and adaptogen herbs for that purpose where 
I'm trying to regulate their the stress response more broadly. I'm not thinking about it in terms of like the adrenal glands being fatigued or hypertrophy. And I right. literally, I never do adrenal testing, like the salivary index. I never do it. But it doesn't take a rocket science scientist to ask somebody, hey, rate your stress zero to 10. And they say seven. And then it's not super like amazing on my part to go, all right, let's do some adaptogens and some nervines. And see how yeah, do. yeah. Like I don't need to waste what, $125 doing an adrenal salivary index test to tell you that you would benefit from a damn adaptogen. Like, right, right. Just save your money. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, again, like, I, I use adaptogens, too. Um, and I, I think, like, what I usually tell people, too, like, sometimes I feel like people think, like, they're going to take these adaptogens and, like, their stress is going to go away, which... Uh, oh, sweetie, no. <laughs> which I think, like, for, for me, yeah, like, when you talk to them, it is like an, oh, honey, like, let's not get carried away. But I'll usually tell them it sort of takes the edge off. That's usually how I like to describe it. I don't know if you kind of have a similar mentality behind it, but it it, it takes yeah. the edge off. It's not going to be a miracle cure or a miracle. There really is, I feel like, no miracle cures. But it's going to... I can tell you the miracle cure. There is one. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. Right now, everybody listening, and you, Amy. Okay. Today, you are quitting your job. Okay. You and your husband are moving to the beach. Yay! You're going to find a cave or a house, whichever floats your boat. Yeah. And you're going to live in said cave or house, and you're going to have somebody else clean that cave or house for you. You're going to go and just lay on the beach naked and have sex all day. And you're going to eat wild-caught fish and organic produce that somebody else cooks and and harvests for you. Uh, that's it. That's okay. the magic here. Sounds good. I'll, um, I'll, get, I'll get right on that. Shy of that magic beach and that ideal human experience... There is no magic cure, but sometimes yeah. I joke about that beach with patients where I'm like, hey, man, if I could tell you to quit your job, yeah. ditch your I, I, mother-in-law, you whoever. It, it sounds like you've been dreaming about this miracle cure for a while, Nikki. I thought it through. I thought yeah, it through. You, you know, you could like wrap some of the food in kelp to get some iodine. I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> go, go for it, man. Yeah. Oh, and you would have to have a Netflix account. Yeah, you, you have some details. You got a lot of house. the details worked out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's like given things that you need to have. Um, yeah. But yeah, shy of that, there's no magic cure. The, the two things that I always tell patients when I send them home with adaptogens and nervines uh, is twofold. Is it A, you know, I'll make them up a, a compounded tincture typically or a compounded tea that I make to them, them and their specifications. Yeah. So I'll go back and I'll, I joke, I play mad scientist and I've got like my my big cabinet full of herbal tinctures and I'll like mix and match them and measure them out. And even though I'm mixing it for the individual, you know, I still tell them it, this is probably not something where like you take it on a Tuesday and then Wednesday you're like, Oh, yeah. adaptogens and nervines typically take weeks and months to really build in your system and start unraveling that stress response and give it a couple of weeks or a month before you really make a judgment call. And then most often people will notice a difference. But if you take it, and I'm impatient like this too. If yeah. you take it on a Tuesday and you think like by Thursday, you're not feeling anything and you're like, darn it, ashwagandha doesn't work. Like yeah. you need to chill. And I 100,000% blame conventional medicine for this because we have been conditioned for what, a hundred years now that you take a pill and you immediately feel better. You take an Excedrin, you take a Tylenol, you take you know a nasal decongestion, whatever, 
and then boom, you're good and you you go about muscling through your life. So herbs and natural products are, I would think, honestly, more powerful than medicines a lot of the time, but they just take a little bit of time and patience. So I do tell everybody, don't expect a magic cure overnight. It'll take a couple of weeks or maybe a month or two. Um, but I tell that, and I've, I have had people who like three days later or a week later, they're texting me or they're, they're messaging me in the portal and they're like, this stuff is great. Can you send me yeah. a refill now so I never run out? Yeah. So those do exist. It's just not always the case. So I prep people for the worst. The other thing is like, and I'm going to hopefully not hit my microphone doing this. You can think of the stress response as this shitty roller coaster ride of like, you know, like really high and really low where it's like, oh my God, I'm really stressed, crash and burn. Oh my God, I'm really stressed, crash and burn. Oh my God. And you keep doing this for your entire life. And adaptogens and nervines and herbal medicines more broadly can take this crappy up and down yo-yo roller coaster ride and it can smooth it out. So you're still going to have days that you perceive as more stressful and less stressful. But you're not going to be like here versus here, right? Like you're going to take that edge off, like you said, and it, the roller coaster becomes more of like a kitty roller coaster ride. Yeah. Like the little kitty one that you see at the carnival as opposed to something you would see at Six Flags. Yeah, like no no vomit potential. Yeah, like just a gentle like, woo. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're going for is like the really dorky kitty roller coaster ride. Yeah, no, exactly. I think like, I think when you start to get into the really powerful, when you get to the really powerful effects is when you start blending things like adaptogens with lifestyle dietary habits yes. that can cover the, the gamut of stressors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think adaptogens can be really great to take that edge off. And I like what you were saying that like, it, it takes some time for the body to um, get up to speed with some of these things and to have yeah. their effects. A lot of times when I work with um, clients, that's with like any supplement, I usually try to like, let them know like, this is something like you might have more immediate effect with. And this is something that definitely needs a little bit more time because like what you're saying, we're definitely prone to being impatient when it comes to effects of pills. Myself included. Exactly. I'm I'm totally guilty of that. And I have to really check myself uh, to be patient and give things enough time to actually do something for me. Right. Um, And that's just, that's not been my experience with adaptogens and nervines in particular, but also herbal medicines and natural therapies more broadly take a little bit more time now that being said like i have people do what i call speed dating and test out a whole bunch of probiotics one after the other and usually like oftentimes i'll see some notable progress within the span of a day or two or at least i should say this i did that experiment initially because i was trying to fish out what probiotic are you going to super hate and let's not sell you a bottle of that one right because i've had those those cases where Somebody takes a bottle of probiotic home, they take one capsule, and they're like, I hate you, and I hate this, and I want to refund. Yeah, like, oh. yeah. So I started the speed dating with probiotics because I just wanted to avoid that and yeah. people being mad at me. And so you can definitely tell within the span of like a dose or two of a probiotic which ones you're super going to hate. Yeah. Um, and there's like caveats. Sometimes you have to push through it, but I, I try to balance that. But then I was pleasantly surprised when I started doing that a few years ago. In the span of a two-day trial... For the speed dating process, I had so many people come back and say, no, I actually, I felt like really good on this one and this one. And 
that I wasn't anticipating. So I think there are some natural compounds, like perhaps probiotics for some people, um, you know, maybe some, some things like prokinetics. There are some things that yeah. you'll notice a quick benefit with a span of like a couple of days or maybe a week. But particularly as we're talking about the stress response and hormones just broadly, it takes time. Yeah, for sure. And I I wish that we had more patience, but sometimes we just have no patience. But it's important to it's important to be patient with adaptogens is the yeah. the takeaway. Yes, I would say so. Um and that might be a good place to kind of hang the hat for the day. I don't know if we can end on a more useful note than being patient with the adaptogens. Yeah. Um, I, I, also, do... I also just love the expression, hang your hat for the day. Right? Like, like that's brings a wrap, me, folks. It brings me back to like, I don't know, olden day. Yeah. <laughs> Which neither of us remember because we're too young <laughs> to remember. But yeah, it does kind of yeah. conjure an image of like, the 1950s of like, hey, honey, I'm home, hanging the yeah, hat. Yeah, everyone up. has their hats. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that was a, uh, hopefully, I don't know, you guys tell us, hopefully that was a good conversation and a useful conversation about the stress response, stress chemistry, sympathetic, parasympathetic, vagus nerve, all of that stuff and how it pertains to health more broadly, but also we did focus in on the gut at, at various points there. Um, but just know it's kind of a big deal. Um, I think if you're alive and you have a pulse in in this day and age, you probably have some degree of a stress response that could be better managed. Um, but certainly, if you if you are aware of your stress, then um, then taking steps to manage that is going to be helpful. As always, for those of you on YouTube, if you could comment down below, like the video, subscribe, ring the bell, do whatever the things you do on YouTube are. And if you are on a podcasting app, if you could rate us five stars, that would be so helpful and help us reach more people and grow this wonderful podcast. Amy, it was a ball as always. I appreciate you and uh, I will see you in the next episode.